This episode of the OrthoBullets audio review podcast will go over the topic of open fracture management from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. An open fracture is defined as a fracture with direct communication to the external environment. It was historically described as a compound fracture. It's important to remember that a soft tissue wound in proximity to a fracture should be treated as an open fracture until proven otherwise. Open fractures are often associated with additional injuries. As far as the orthopedic urgency of treating open fractures, in the absence of life-threatening injuries, there is no clinical advantage to performing surgery within 6 hours of injury versus 6 to 24 hours. The two classification systems for open fractures include the Gastillo classification and the Schoen classification. The Gastillo classification is based on three types. Type 1 is a wound less than 1 cm with minimal contamination or muscle damage. Type 2 is a wound 1 to 10 cm with moderate soft tissue injury. Type 3 wounds are divided into three subtypes, A, B, and C. Type 3A wounds are usually greater than 10 cm, contaminated with extensive soft tissue damage and are the result of high energy mechanisms. Type 3A injuries usually have adequate tissue for flap coverage. Remember that farm injuries are automatically at least Gastillo 3A wounds. Type 3B injuries are typically the result of extensive periosteal stripping, and these wounds require soft tissue coverage, like through a rotational or free flap. Type 3C wounds have a vascular injury requiring vascular repair, regardless of the degree of soft tissue injury. It's important to remember that the most accurate way to grade open fractures is by intraoperative examination. The Schoen classification for open fractures uses wound size, level of contamination, and fracture pattern to grade open fractures. Grade 1 injuries are open fractures with a small puncture wound without skin contusion. These injuries have negligible bacterial contamination and are usually secondary to a low-energy fracture pattern. Grade 2 injuries are open injuries with small skin and soft tissue contusions. They have moderate contamination and variable fracture patterns. Grade 3 injuries are open fractures with heavy contamination, extensive soft tissue damage, and are often associated with arterial or nerve injuries. Grade 4 injuries are open fractures with incomplete or complete amputations. With respect to antibiotic management, Castillo type 1 and type 2 wounds should be treated with a first-generation cephalosporin. However, clindamycin or vancomycin can also be used if allergies exist. Hauser et al. review the literature on antibiotics and open fractures, and they note that the use of a first-generation cephalosporin, along with appropriate fracture care, minimize the risk of infection. They also state that current treatment is often rooted in old, low-level data that are older than 30 years old. Savelli et al. report that although methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA, is increasingly common, no evidence exists to recommend for the use of MRSA prophylaxis. They recommend selecting antibiotics against MRSA for these open fractures only if significant prevalence of MRSA carriers is seen or other risk factors are present. Zalavras et al. review open fracture treatment protocols and state that although controversy exists regarding optimal treatment of open fractures, immediate intravenous antibiotic administration should be done in order to minimize infection. They also report that the goals of treatment of these injuries are the prevention of infection, union of the fracture, and restoration of function. 
Castillo type 3 injuries usually require a first-generation cephalosporin plus an aminoglycoside. Farm injuries, heavy contamination, or possible bowel contamination will require addition of high-dose penicillin for anaerobic coverage against bacteria like Clostridium. Some special considerations for antibiotic management include freshwater wounds, which require fluoroquinolones, or a third or fourth generation cephalosporin. Saltwater wounds will require doxycycline plus septazidine or a fluoroquinolone. One of the most important things to remember with respect to antibiotic management is to initiate them as soon as possible. Studies show increased infection rate when antibiotics are delayed for more than three hours from the time of injury. As far as duration of antibiotics, continue them for 24 hours after the initial injury if the wound is able to be closed primarily. Continue for 24 hours after final closure if the wound is not closed during the initial surgical debridement, and 72 hours for type 3 wounds. Tetanus prophylaxis should be initiated in the emergency room or the trauma bay. Two forms of prophylaxis exist, tetanus toxoid and tetanus immune globulin. The toxoid dose is 0.5 milliliters, regardless of age, and immune globulin dosing is 75 units for patients less than 5 years old, 125 units for patients 5 to 10 years old, and 250 units for patients greater than 10 years old. Toxoid and immunoglobulin should be given intramuscularly with two different syringes in two different locations. Anytime an open wound is encountered, the tetanus prophylaxis protocol should be initiated in the emergency room. The correct treatment depends upon the severity of the wound and the patient's tetanus vaccine status. Treatment may entail no further action, vaccination, or vaccination and administration of the tetanus immune globulin. The tetanus booster and immune globulin are used to enhance the immune response to Clostridium tetany, a gram-positive bacillus found in the soil. A complete vaccination history for tetanus involves three doses, while an incomplete vaccination history involves less than three doses. So in the setting of a clean minor wound with an unknown vaccination history or a history of less than three doses, only give the tetanus vaccine, but not the tetanus immune globulin. In the setting of a clean minor wound with a vaccination history of greater than or equal to three doses, only give the tetanus vaccine if the last dose was received greater than 10 years ago, and do not give the tetanus immune globulin. In the setting of all other wounds with an unknown vaccination history or a history of less than three doses, give both the tetanus vaccine and tetanus immune globulin. In the setting of all other wounds with a vaccination history or greater than or equal to three doses, only give the tetanus vaccine if the last dose received was greater than five years ago and do not give the tetanus immune globulin. Let's consider the case of a 27-year-old man who sustains a Gastillo-Anderson type 2 open tibia fracture during a motorcycle accident. He had his full three doses of tetanus vaccination as an infant. He also had a tetanus booster vaccination 18 months ago when he began a new job. So in this case, based on the tetanus prophylaxis algorithm that we just discussed, the patient's tetanus has been updated within the past five years, so he does not need an update of the vaccination or immune globulin. As far as emergency room management of open fractures, fracture management begins after initial trauma survey and resuscitation is complete. So remember your ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. Remember to initiate early IV antibiotics and update tetanus prophylaxis as indicated. 
low-energy gunshot wounds should be treated with a single dose of a first-generation cephalosporin in the ED. Make sure to control bleeding. Direct pressure will control active bleeding. And do not blindly clamp or place tourniquets on damaged extremities. Assessment should include evaluation of soft tissue damage and a neurovascular exam. If there's a concern for a vascular insult, ABI should be obtained. The normal ratio is greater than 0.9. A vascular surgery consult and angiogram is warranted if the ABI is less than 0.9. Consider a saline load test if there's a concern for a traumatic arthrotomy. Make sure to remove any gross debris from the wound. However, make sure that you do not remove any bone fragments. Place a sterile saline-soaked dressing on the wound. There's little evidence to support aggressive irrigation or irrigation with antiseptic solution in the ED, as this can push debris further into the wound. And as far as stabilization, use a splint, brace, or traction for temporary stabilization. This decreases pain, minimizes soft tissue trauma, and prevents disruption of clots. Now, with respect to operating room management, aggressive debridement and irrigation is the first major goal as initial wound treatment is critical in the treatment of open fractures and contaminated wounds. Thorough debridement is critical to the prevention of a deep infection. Remove any foreign bodies and expose the fracture by recreating the mechanism of injury. Extend the wound proximally and distally in line with the extremity. It's important to remember that low-pressure irrigation is actually preferred over high-pressure pulse lavage. Wounds should be adequately debrided of all devitalized tissue and subsequently irrigated with a saline solution to reduce the bacterial count. Some evidence suggests that high-pressure pulsatile lavage damages bone structure and disrupts soft tissue. In an animal model, Hassinger et al. showed that high-pressure pulsatile lavage caused deeper penetration of bacteria and results in greater bacterial retention in soft tissue when compared with low-pressure lavage. Owens et al. in a sheep model of contaminated soft tissue compared low- and high-pressure lavage with normal saline solution, bacitracin solution, castile soap, and benzalkonium chloride solution. And at 48 hours, the group treated by low-pressure lavage and saline showed the lowest rebound in bacterial counts. So based on this data and other studies as well, saline has been shown to be the most effective irrigating agent. On average, 3 liters of saline are used for each successive gastillo type. So 3 liters is used for type 1 wounds, 6 liters for type 2 wounds, and 9 liters for type 3 wounds. Bony fragments without soft tissue attachments should be removed. Fracture stabilization involves internal fixation, external fixation, or intramedullary nail as indicated. Avoid placement of pins in proximity to planned definitive incisions. Stage debridement and irrigation is often indicated for open fractures. Perform every 24 to 48 hours as needed. Early soft tissue coverage or wound closure is ideal. The timing of flap coverage for open tibial fractures remains controversial, although less than five days is desired. There's an increased risk of infection beyond seven days. You can proceed with bone grafting after the wound is clean and closed. And negative pressure wound therapy in the form of wound vax may be utilized during debridement until definitive coverage can be achieved. You can place an antibiotic bead pouch in open, dirty wounds. Beads are made by mixing methyl methacrylate with heat-stable antibiotic powder. 
Next up, you will hear OrthoBullet's very own Dr. Ben Taylor explain his process for making antibiotic impregnated cement, or PMMA, beads. Antibiotic beads can be created by the surgeon for use for treatment of osteomyelitis, soft tissue infection, or even management of dead space. Each unit of cement is 40 grams, and the maximum antibiotic you can mix with this is 8 grams. Biomechanics studies show that the strength of the cement declines if you use more than 2 grams per unit. You also find that most commercially available antibiotic impregnated cements actually have 1 gram per 40 grams of cement. In this case, the patient has a lower extremity soft tissue infection, which is requiring the use of antibiotic impregnated beads. At this point, we have mixed both the powder as well as monomer together along with the antibiotics. In this instance, I used 3.6 grams of tobermycin along with 2 grams of vancomycin, which were selected according to the sensitivity of the infection. You'll also notice we're mixing by hand. The reason we're doing this is that this increases the porosity of the cement and helps the elution characteristics. The elution characteristics are also helped by using two antibiotics instead of one. Prolonged mixing is sometimes needed, especially with high doses of antibiotics, as this tends to take a long time to liquefy. This is a commercially available system to make antibiotic beads. Basically, this is a flexible rubber type material with holes that are filled with the cement. Once all the holes are filled, excess cement is removed in order to minimize need for cleanup after this is compressed. Typically, non-absorbable suture is utilized in the string holes here to set in the cement. The reason this is used is this allows for easier removal later as all the cement balls will be tethered together. However, in this instance, I'm using large gauge antibiotic covered vicryl suture, which is absorbable. We then top this off with a small amount of additional cement to make sure the sutures are in place as well as to ensure that all of the holes are properly filled with cement. The top of the device is then placed into position and compressed. Uh, we do this manually first and then use any available tray to set on this to hold this down in position and provide compression. After it appears the cement is fully cured, this is evaluated. What we do is take up some of the extra cement from the side. If this is still malleable and flexible, the cement is not fully cured. We let this sit for several additional minutes to let the cement balls fully harden. Once they're at this stage, they can come out fairly easily by simply flexing the rubber as well as pulling on the suture. Here's the first one of our bead strings being lovingly modeled. Oftentimes we make these concurrent to the formal debridement. We do this to minimize operative time. These beads can be made by any surgical assistant or other surgeon available. The sutures on the end can be trimmed if desired. Often one end is left long to facilitate removal at a later date. So remember that anything more than 2 grams of antibiotics per unit decreases your strength of your final product and you can use a maximum of 8 grams of antibiotic per unit. Using two antibiotics together improves your elution characteristics. This is also improved by using Palico cement, which has improved porosity. Hand mixing also improves this. Different reconstruction options for bone loss include a masculet technique, which is a relatively new innovation involving the induction of a fibrous tissue membrane around the bone defect site, taking advantage of the body's foreign body reaction to the presence of a polymethylmethacrylate spacer. Other options may include distraction osteogenesis, which is a technique that relies on the normal healing process that occurs between controlled, surgically osteotomized bone segments. And another option may be a vascularized bone flap or bone transfer. We will discuss these options in more detail in other episodes. Complications to be aware of in the setting of open fractures include infection, of course, 
neurovascular injury, and even compartment syndrome, which is important to keep in mind, can still occur in the setting of open fractures. That's all for this review on open fracture management. This is the OrthoBullets audio review, a podcast by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Visit orthobullets.com or download the Bullets app on your iPhone or Android device for topics, questions, techniques, videos, and much more.